looks like a disorder that you rarely ever see anymore, except in internet cultures. We call it a podcast. Quite frankly, we don't know much about it, except that it starts with some obsessed host that eventually leads to a delusion. People will listen to his or her opinions. A narcissistic ego, if you will. Hi guys, welcome to Shibijibis. This is your host, as usual, Sam Carlson. And this is the horror podcast by fans, for fans, and about fans. Brought to you again by Eternally Bored Productions. And today we are going to be talking about 1973's The Exorcist with the lovely Linda Blair. And today we have a new guest. Yay! We have to keep pestering Austin to be on here all the time. <laughs> so this is my guest, Jesus Hernandez. Say hello. Hi. And how did you get into this studio? Who are you? Uh, Jay opened the door. I, I think he assumed that I was either a uh, hot male stripper and or uh, full with drugs. So apparently that's the only way I could actually get up in the door. Uh, but no, I'm actually an old friend. And so we uh, were... Um, uh, part of the pop culture phenomenon in San Antonio known as Alamo City Comic Con once upon a time. And so now I'm actually just, uh, that's how I came about knowing uh, this uh, environment and I was graciously invited. So as a fan, I wanted to come in and just have a chat. Yeah. And I really appreciate you for that because I don't know anything about the exorcist since I didn't grow up Catholic. I went to Catholic school for a couple of years, but as a non-Catholic, Nah, I don't have a lot of knowledge about Catholicism in general. So did you grow up Catholic? Yes, actually. So I was, um, so originally I'm from Mexico and I grew up in, uh, on the border, a little town called Eagle Pass. And my parents were born Catholic, traditional Catholics, except they were actually the first, uh, skepticals. I think they were the first, uh, non, um, believing Catholics that were still Catholics by culture. Mm -hmm. So they really instilled in me a, a healthy dosage of skepticism. And I was able to get kicked out of catechism somewhere around um, after my first communion. Uh, once that happened, I actually, uh, you know, went on my own journey. But uh, growing up and going through first communion, I was able to get exposed to a lot of the uh, a lot of the actual uh, rituals within Catholicism. And that helped out in uh, instilling in me a great fear of this movie. So what did you do to get kicked out? <laughs> I have to ask. I basically said, why? And, <laughs> and, then, and then that was pretty much where it started. It went okay. downhill from there. Uh, some of the nuns and the rulers were a little uh, a little too unforgiving compar in comparison to asking the question. Mm. Understandable. Um, so, yeah, back to The Exorcist. When did you see this movie? So I, I actually didn't see this movie until I was probably around 14 or 15. Very uh, impressionable. Yes, in fact. And actually, it was even uh, something that I couldn't watch beforehand. So uh, when I lost my grandfather back in 86, I was about nine years old or so. So I'm dating myself. But uh, at the time, it was actually uh, uh, during the funeral. As kids, we would all start talking about this and this movie would come up with this kind of mystique and aura to it that was all about uh, we've heard of this and we saw this and there were all kinds of rumors that families and my cousins were saying about well I heard the actress Linda Blair I didn't know who it was at the time but the little girl that was in the movie killed herself after it was filmed and everybody that watches it you know somebody goes blind in the theater or some other oh, ridiculous thing would come up so of course being an, uh, an eight nine year old at the time you're kind of thinking this sounds awesome but I'm scared and so uh, it it wasn't until uh, growing up in that small town of Eagle Pass, I was very fortunate in being in the heyday of the VHS and video store era. Mm. So we had one little local video store there, uh, mom and pop shop that we would always go to every weekend because that was the only thing to do uh, besides getting high or getting drunk. And, you know, I couldn't afford either. 
So, uh, but I could afford a one. Movies rental. it is. Yes, it's like a dollar night rental. So uh, <laughs> we would go down there to the movie uh, to the uh, video store, and so eventually we end up finding this uh, great. Uh, uh, horror section that they had, and we're talking about all this awesome artwork, everything from Faces of Death to the uh, the the newest movies like The Gate and such that will be coming out. But this one in particular was The Exorcist. So as a teenager, one summer random summer night or uh, weekend, it was a matter of hey, there it is, let's go check it out. And so rent it, watched it, was not let down. And what happened that night that you first watched it? I'll I'll tell you the biggest thing for me was the the buildup. You know, not not. As I've gotten older, I've I, I've realized that what really gra- what really captured my imagination from this movie was the way it could still hold up, and it's really. Uh, different for generations. So it, it captures different generations in the movie. And uh, as a teenager, you watch this and you take certain things out of it. The elements that I took off at the, I took out at the time were very much the ones that were involving uh, the, the visual and the visceral. You know, we're talking about, she, this little girl just said, what? You know? mm-hmm. And then- uh, and then She's just, doing what with that cross? Exactly. And, and then, uh, and, and actually seeing the, the, the great practical effects that they used in this movie, uh, the way that they would actually um, have this, uh, third act that was just nonstop in your face with all of that, right? You're talking mm-hmm. visual effects, language, uh, just action packed. Uh, and as a you know teenager, this is great. This is awesome. And growing up in uh, and still at the time, having had all that background with Catholicism, I just thought this was so realistic. Uh, then in my twenties, watching that, it was more of almost like a little bit of a burgeoning nostalgia with that, and and realizing. And then that I was very fortunate to have found a woman that actually wanted to marry me and love me, and so <laughs> she was a huge fan of it as well. And when we would bond over that movie, and we would talk about it, and we would reminisce about it, and and you know those experiences in our childhood about how we actually love that movie. And then by the time we got into my, uh, then the next decade, uh, we were actually talking about um, being able to go ahead and, and actually go to these sites and visit that. And we were able to make that happen back in uh, 2012 uh, and go visit uh, DC and Georgetown. So having that and seeing the, uh, the movie, it was uh, very much now understanding that scope of it. Now going into this next chapter in my life, now I see it from that perspective of the uh, uh, the parent generation, and then and going into the uh, the eight and the care of the aging parents and the guilt that comes from that, and seeing mm-hmm. how that impacts the, the character development and the way that 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 um, that's just right underneath the surface of of all of that great practical effects, magical stuff that was going on. So that was really some of the, that's why it resonates so much for me. And it still continues to this day, but going back to when I was 14, 15 and watching that, it was all about being in your face visceral. Absolutely. It's like more for shock value at that, at that age. Exactly. Uh, did you always like watch horror films or was this kind of like your foray into horror as a genre? Uh, it was up there in the, in the foray. I had, uh, when I was growing up, uh, back in those days, cable TV had like a little bit of a, a time where HBO would be like free for like a month and then the cable tech would forget yep. to turn it off. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So you would have it for several months. So back in the boonies where we lived, uh, that was actually uh, something that would happen. And so 
the first horror movie that I was introduced to was Poltergeist. It scared, oh, scared the crap out of me. that movie. Oh, that movie's too scary. Uh, and I was right at that age, right, when I saw it, and I thought, oh, holy crap, a clown, right? So clown toys and all that. It was right. That would have been my bedroom. Uh, so then moving forward to uh, the next movie that I saw was Amityville 2, The Possession. Mm-hmm. And so that one was the one that uh, my mom had actually used as the premise to not buy me a Walkman. Because in the movie, <laughs> there's, a, there's a scene there where uh, uh, the, uh, uh, I forget his name, the character there, but he's ultimately the protagonist. He's the one that ends up getting possessed. And in the process of getting possessed, he's wearing this Walkman and they, show, they, they zoom in on where he takes off the headphones and you could hear the demon's voice talking to him through those headphones. So I have a question. When was Amityville 2? What year was that? That would I have don't... been 1982, Is if it... I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. So did this kid listen to rock and roll? Is it like rock and roll is a devil's music? Of course. Oh, yeah. And so of oh, course. the 80s. Know, Never mind. It was, it was already the 80s. It was already the, 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 the satanic panic that was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, it's actually funny that your mom wouldn't buy you a Walkman for that reason. <laughs> yeah, it was it was <laughs> funnier than the reality because we couldn't afford one. But well, I can I, no, I can relate to it. Like my mom would not let me see The Exorcist because she thought it was too scary for me to see. And I saw Tremors when I was five, and I think my first Nightmare on Elm Street when I was seven. I was no stranger to horror, and she wouldn't let me have a Ouija board because of The Exorcist either. <laughs> yeah. So it's nuts. Yeah, I think uh, for me, those were the two first movies, and then I stopped because I was so scared. I could not watch horror movies. And then I went into superheroes and all that great stuff with cartoons, uh, transforming robots and whatnot. Uh, and, but then ultimately, it got to the point where as a teenager in this small town, there's a video store, let's go rent it. And so I had a, a brother-in-law there that at the time was always about, hey, let's just go rent movies. And he was the one really that introduced me or, or gave me the permission to go ahead and rent these. And so that's at that point, that's when I went uh, headfirst into every the horror genre with anything I could find. The Exorcist, the Faces of Death series, mm-hmm. uh, of course, the Amityville, Freddy Krueger, well, Nightmare on Elm Street with uh, Halloween, uh, uh, the Friday the 13th, all that good stuff came out at that point. Oh, yeah. The 80s uh, horror genre. We, we, it just flourished on VHS. So yes, it was a it beautiful did. time. Uh, so as far as the movie goes, if anybody hasn't actually seen The Exorcist, which this might be my first full viewing of it, since I've probably seen it bits and pieces here on TV uh, over the years. But this was my first full viewing. But if anybody's not familiar with it, basically, there's this little girl named Reagan, played by Linda Blair. She's fucking around with this Ouija board. And for whatever reason, she gets possessed by Pazuzu slash Captain Howdy. We don't actually get to see hear the name Pazuzu until I think probably second movie, if I'm not mistaken. And then then we've got a couple of priests who have to go and uh, give her an exorcism. And really, the story is more about Father Karras, the younger priest, I would say. What would you think about that? Right. And I think uh, Pazuzu was actually heard during the first movie. Uh, He was actually uh, alluded to right at the very beginning uh, where Father Marin was actually uh, in uh, Iraq, of all places. Yeah. And that was the statue they uncovered. And so that was where it was named. Of course, that was Pazuzu. Uh, And so it was mentioned in there somewhere within that first act. Okay. uh, But never really directly correlated to it actually being the demon that went after Reagan later. Yeah, and when uh, Reagan is possessed by Pazuzu, uh, Pazuzu already knows, like, as soon as Marin steps into the house. Yep. So why is that? 
I think maybe I was wondering if maybe there was something in the book. Not directly. Uh, one of the things that uh, well, then Peter Blatty, uh, the, the author, had had gone for uh, the horror that that he was looking for was that the 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 concept of randomness that uh, basically shit happens mm. and mm-hmm. there's no rhyme or reason. It's just it just is. And in the movie, it, it actually keeps some of that dialogue and does a great job in. in and, and really putting that in a, in a character building moment between the two priests during the exorcism, like a like the little time outbreak that they had, yeah. where they're talking about, where they're asking why why would mm-hmm. the devil pick on this little girl? And it was uh, Father Marin that was telling, uh, which was beautifully talented, wonderful Max von Sydow, you know, at his prime right there. But when he was basically telling. Um, Father Karras, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he was saying, "It's that's the way the devil works. He wants you to take. He wants to take what you find innocent and beautiful and, and safe and nice and pervert it. And that's the kind of horror that and, and just randomly picks it. And that's the horror that he was going for. Yeah." I felt it was also kind of uh, related to Father Karras's whole storyline with his mother and having that guilt because uh, essentially he feels like it's his fault that his mother died. Uh, if he had just not gone into the priesthood, he could have afforded better care for her. And it was, uh, I think Father Marin said something about it's sort of the way, it's sort of uh, the devil trying to uh, disprove that God, you know, that, uh, disprove God's love for us. And right, yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the the great parts about this movie, right? It's open to that kind of that that interpretation. And one of the ones that resonated with me was to see how you have this character that is um, when he's going toe to toe with the devil. Again, it's, it's just random luck that he runs into a family. He's at the right place at the right time, or wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. Meets is asked for help, and. It's the devil that knows how to go ahead and get at you, and so from a, a and will go after your weakness. Mm-hmm. So different people, right? It could be the the, the vice would be drugs or, or or sex or whatever it is that the devil will go after and, and, and get at you through that way. But with Father Marin, this is a, a strong, uh, wonderfully built character that was very much a, a humble human being that wanted to serve others and help others and saw the limitations that it came to from the dogma of the church that even bettered himself with education to become this individual that could uh, blend both the sciences, so to speak, as a psychologist or psychoanalyst, I forget what it was at the time of his official title, uh, as well as a priest. And so here's this man that had, that you could argue and say he was, uh, he didn't really have any uh, cracks in his armor, but you know, Satan being Satan, Pazuzu, he'd find a way and he found it perfectly just from a timing perspective with what the, the, the what was tearing at Father Mar's, uh, Father Karras's heart, which was that concept of, I am, um, I'm the sole provider for my mom. Um, I sh- through no fault of her own, I'm not able to care for her. I'm not able to care for her enough. And now that she ended up, uh, dying the way she did, um, I could have, I look back on my own life and realize I could have done more for her or I question myself, could I have done more for her? And that's exactly what Pazuzu and Satan would use to go ahead and fuck with your head, you know, and, and get at you so that you, this girl's mine, I'm not getting out of here. I mean, as if this movie couldn't be Catholic guilt, the film enough as it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? For real. And I definitely related more to uh, what Father Karras is going through and uh, my mom's disabled. So, you know, I take care of a lot of her expenses and 
it's like that was what was like getting at me. You know, I was for, you know, watching uh, what Reagan was going through. It didn't really feel like I didn't really. I mean, it's not that I didn't have empathy for this poor little girl who was, you know, like sticking this cross into her cunt. But, I, you know, and possessed and all this shit. I'm sorry. It's very off color podcast. So but, you know, it's, it's not that it's just like I related more to Father Karras in that. And it's more like Reagan was like a vehicle for his own character development. And it's like for me, like watching The Exorcist is more about Father Karras than anything. <laughs> I think so. I, I well, I'll, I'll agree with you 100% on that piece. Now, I think uh, from what I've heard and in, in discussing this with other fans, it's um, well, uh, the Reagan, the Reaganites <laughs> are the ones that would actually really, uh, I, I think, go with that visceral aspect of the movie, and they really and they appreciate Linda Blair as a wonderful actress. I mean, this is her explosive world premiere mm -hmm. and she showed the kind of acting chops that she had and it's definitely uh, appreciated and that's great work that she did there uh, unfortunately probably was typecast because of it right coming right out of the gate with that movie um, but the truth is that her with doing that and then Max von Sydow of course I mean he was already established so oh, yeah. this movie was more like a you know a supporting actor type of uh, role for him uh, but uh, freaking and um the director just this was one of his this was arguably his best movie uh what um when it came down to the father Karras and that character that's the one that uh, the older i've gotten the more i related to him and and mm -hmm. uh and really i think at, at at that age of a teenager going into my 20s i definitely had a uh i would see it from the perspective of reagan and thinking of that randomness of holy crap anybody could just be randomly possessed uh but nowadays it's more like yeah that doesn't really scare me as much as that Catholic guilt that comes with, you know, aging parents and whatnot. Oh, yeah, the guilt is what what uh, tears at you. And, you know, I think it's like Father Karras never really came to terms with that. You know, he did sacrifice himself in order to save Reagan. But I wonder if that's because he knew that if he did survive and even if Reagan survived, he probably still couldn't live with the guilt that he killed his mother because Pazuzu seems to easily exploit that weakness. I agree. I think um, when when I've seen so after the multiple releases of uh, The Exorcist, right, there was a 20th anniversary edition. Uh, there was a 30th anniversary edition. And then uh, right now, of course, is the 35th. That's floating. Well, I've heard, but I haven't seen. Uh, but um, the 20th was the one that we enjoyed for a couple of reasons, uh, primarily because we, of course, we bought the DVD. But uh, that was the recut re-release that came out of movie theaters. Mm. And that was uh, the so total funny sunny a funny side anecdote to that one we went to the movies on this one here in san antonio uh the fiesta theater was showing it and uh we come out of the theater right and so you could tell the generational gap was already existing because we heard some like 16 17 year old that watched this and she was like this is supposed to be the scariest movie of all time whatever it was boring and uh you know i had to stop my wife from smacking the shit out of that girl <laughs> it's like, how why dare you why do you stop her yeah, you know? <laughs> so um but yeah that was uh when when all of these different versions of the movies come out uh the commentary and especially the the special features that come out they, they've had these uh, discussions, almost like an open forum between uh, William Peter Blatty and Friedkin. And uh, I can't remember which one of those versions it was, but they would talk and they would actually discuss that um, that aspect about where if you have uh, where where 
he sacrificed himself, right? Kira sacrificed himself. Why? How, do you, how come? Because that was like a big question that they would always get asked when they talk about the movie. Mm-hmm. And so one of their, uh, one of the responses, and I want to say it was, um, it was uh, the author, Blatty, that responds and says, you know, that people automatically assume that evil is stronger when they saw that Father Karras died. And that really wasn't his intent. His intent was to show that, look at what ultimately resonates with Christians about the sacrifice of Jesus, right? This is really how you beat the devil. And that is ultimately what Karras was supposed to symbolize, that he had to sacrifice himself much like Jesus to save sinners and whatnot, that that was kind of the parallel that he was going for with that final sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and that ultimately... He passed, you know, he died. However, you know, Pazuzu's defeated. Reagan is uh, not only safe, but she has almost no memory or recollection of what happened to her. So the trauma isn't going to be there. Uh, and the uh, and the family was able to go ahead and move on. So, you know, and the relationship builds with the detective and uh, the priest that was a friend of Father Karras's. I can't remember the character's names, mm-hmm. but George C. Scott played him in Exorcist 3. Uh, and I thought that was a great job. Underrated, underrated sequel. Uh, but the those were, um, you know, it's like, so new relationships, new friendships are formed and, f- and begin to flourish. Uh, a family is able to move on and a little girl that was abused is able to move on without any permanent uh, mental scarring. So that in, a, in and of itself was the way I, they, they, he tried to explain how it really isn't. Evil isn't really stronger just because Father Karras died. It's just that it kind of, you're really just trying to, I guess, walk that thin line between uh, that it's equal to one another, right? Good mm-hmm. and evil, always in balance. So how does the uh, the book compare to the events in the movie? So the book itself is actually very similar. Uh, looking at my wife, was there anything that you remember specifically as a difference in it? No, because I, I, it really was almost, uh, you read it and it, it really, and I have to admit, I haven't read it in a while. Uh, <laughs> so it's uh, from what, my recollection of it, it really wasn't that different. Um, the The biggest thing about the the book to me that, the, the, that drew me the most was then, and this started around in my 20s, was when I found out the history behind the, the making of the book. Mm-hmm. So uh, Blatty himself had actually been a uh, seminarian, so he was a student at George Sam University, and there was, and I kind of imagine it, you know, it's like, you know, you're going to college, right? You're cool, you're, you think you're cool, or you hear about the cool professors, or there they happen to be priests, and he hears about this one really cool guy that had actually gone uh, to um, to this subdiv- or suburb where he actually was, um, there was an actual exorcism, he had to perform a little boy. Mm-hmm. And so, come to find out that, uh, you know, Blatty um, um, had tried to, was actually going for uh, journalism, if I'm not mistaken. He was going for uh, basically like investigative journalism, something along those lines. And so he wanted to write a book while he was studying there uh, that was just going to detail the story of that actual exorcism. And it was going to be almost like a true crime drama type of nonfiction work. Um, the priest, he had talked to the priest. The priest was like, yeah, cool. Well, we'll do it. Uh, just uh, make sure you get the okay from the family. And so reached out to the family. The family at first was like, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. And then they had like a change of heart all of a sudden. And, uh, you know, they kind of gloss over why. Uh, if you're if you're a believer, I'm, I'm assuming that you would think that you just didn't want to risk inviting Satan back into your life, right? In your family's life. Mm. If you're a non-believer such as myself, then you'd be thinking it's like, well, we're going to get more attention to us and they're going to call us out for being liars and are making this stuff up. So let's uh, low key, low key, right? Either uh, way, yeah. yeah 
either way, they didn't want to go ahead and actually give the rights to the story. And so, but the Blatty had already spoken and gotten enough of an interview from the priest. He already had enough material to go ahead and say, well, I don't have to throw this out. I could just change the names, change the gender. Ta-da! The exorcist was born. So uh, that's really the the impetus and the uh, the background behind the book. So a lot of this, of course, it's fictionalized. And unfortunately, Blatty's no longer here where we can ask him to, to go into that much detail and to, to, to discern, tease out what was actually told to him by that priest versus what he embellished on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really based on on that story. Uh, and uh, and that's one of the things that always uh, attracted me to the, to the book itself. Uh, when, uh, when Blatty died a couple years ago, that was also um, the, the story behind uh, my book, if you want me to get into about the physical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the, uh, the copy of the book that I have is actually one that shows um, what was on eBay. And uh, it's, a, you know, it's a first edition. It's, it's a little bit beat up. Uh, but the biggest thing is it was actually uh, autographed by William Peter Blatty himself. Um, he was an individual that we always thought, you know, being in the uh, helping out with the convention circuit around, we always thought, hey, this might be someone that we could eventually invite. Uh, it was a name that we had thrown out in some of those secret meetings that we had with Alamo City, uh, along with others that I, I don't know if I can. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tease out. I'll tease out, I guess, uh, before I get into get into trouble. But like some, for instance, we talked about folks like Max Brooks, R.L. Stein. You know, those are names that we've thrown out. And with them, Peter Blatty was my my uh, my con- contribution to it. Uh, Unfortunately, um, you know, as much as we thought we were going to be able to go after him, he passed away before we had a chance. And so uh, when this book came online, being the um, the totally inappropriate human being that I am, as soon as I got the uh, tweet that said he had passed away, I'm going straight to eBay, <laughs> look up whichever books he has autographed. And I'm like, there it is. Buy it now. Boom. Right. That just makes that just makes good financial <laughs> sense. That's all. Yeah. And that's how I actually got the copy here. And so, um, and since then, I've had it uh, displayed in our little cabinet case. Uh, I have a, we have a cabinet case at our home that has uh, a lot of interesting um, paraphernalia, right? Uh, and so, uh, this is one of the books that we have there next to our Santissima Muerte um, statue idol, you know, to keep away all the black magic. Next to the uh, Exorcist rights books that we have, and mm-hmm. all the other cool stuff that we do to keep the demons at bay. Oh, what other kinds of paraphernalia do you have? Uh, so, for example, are you like the Warrens with your own room? It's funny you mention that. Uh, we we actually do have um, it, uh, the cabinet itself. It was a running joke. We did print out the little sign that said, uh, "Warning: do, Absolutely, do not open this case." Right, and so we had that. We I put that on the uh, on the cabinet itself, uh, and then uh, in there we've collected just different items. So uh, growing up in, um, in the border, and 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 and, uh, and then with my my dad, we had a fascination with ancient cultures, and so uh, with the Mayans and the Aztecs, and so I actually was able to get a lot of the, the uh, Aztec gods, a lot of the idols that were made there in, bought in Mexico. Uh, so I have a lot of the, the, the God of Death, Pakal, and all these other ones that are there. Uh, and then um, we have, uh, besides that, we had, of course, the Exorcist book. Uh, we had a Santissima Muerte, which is, you know, the, what's known as the death cult amongst the cartels in Mexico, right? It's the, the basically the, the Grim Reaper, right? Okay. Uh, so we have one idol of that one. Uh, what else did we have in there? We have, oh, we have Chick Tracks. Chick Tracks, which I don't know if you guys know about those. But I've never heard of them. Those are, the, those are the ones when you go into the bathroom, it's a little like rectangular leaflet paper. It's a little comic book and it has, uh, it okay. talks to you if you, you know, you're basically 
gonna go to hell, so repent now. And oh yeah, yeah. For me. Okay, those are yeah. those are made by this guy. I forgot the first name, but it's Chick. His last name is actually Chick, and, and uh, they call them Chick tracks. Some of those are extremely collectible, uh, and uh, and so yeah, that we have one. We have a couple in there, like one that talks about Halloween and why we're all going to hell for that. Oh, those are the funniest. I love collecting those from the laundromat. I need to be saving those now. Yeah, apparently you do. They I didn't know until I started looking on eBay, and you realize, oh crap, they, they actually go up in value. Man. So, so, annoyed. so we have those. Uh, I had uh, some books that I got from uh, oh, the Stephen King, Charlie the Choo Choo Train, right? That was when it first came out at San Diego Comic-Con. That was a, a um, children's book from um, the Dark Tower that Stephen King wrote under a pseudonym. It was released over there, so I had that one and I put it in there. Oh. I have a bunch of stuff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show because, you know, when you're going to go to hell, might as well go all in. And Let's then, go all uh, sti- might as well go stylish. Yeah. And then uh, what else? did we have in there? oh we have the Ouija board of course oh nice uh, we have actually so I found that one as well eBay love eBay for how these you can get into demonology through them uh, but uh, they have the Ouija board from 1971 which was the actual one not the one but it, it was this it was the line that they used in the movie right for the okay. exorcist so it was from that uh, and so we have the box there going and showing that off we have I have old uh, Cooper um Cooper masks, right? Cooper in Collegeville. That's what I'm thinking of the old 80s costumes that used to come out on Halloween. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, that brings me back. Yeah, those are the ones. We have a couple of those masks in there. Uh, and uh, and then besides the um, oh, some stuff from like um, Trick or Treat, uh, some uh, props from there. Uh, and I'm trying to remember what else was kind of neat that was in there. Uh, a Walking Dead wrist game, I think. Sweet. <laughs> That was just like the random shit that we threw in there. I have a gizmo. And a gizmo I thought was actually kind of funny from Gremlins uh, because I thought it was pretty nondescript. And now that we got this rescue dog, she's always barking at that gizmo, mm-hmm. right? It's like, it doesn't bark at anything else in the house except that gizmo. So um, it's like, hey, cool. That's the one that got possessed. The <laughs> one was, it's always the ones you least expect. Um, I could see that, though. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. You know, just don't get it wet. You'll know yep. for sure. There you like, go. that's the test. But with the Ouija board, was 1971 kind of one of the, was that uh, one of the earliest printings? I mean, Ouija board's been around so long. So from what I remember, the Parker Brothers got the rights to do it or did their version of it, right? Their exclusive rights. So the Ouija board's been around for forever. But Parker Brothers started getting their version in around the 60s, 70s, around the 50s, 60s. And uh, and 1971 just happened to be the year um, that when they were making the movie, uh, The Exorcist, that was like the one you could go into in any toy store and pick up and you know use so nowadays if you do go well i was gonna say if you, yeah, i'm dating myself here but if like hey if you go into a kb or a toys r us oh, wow. tears tears oh. I, anyway if you go into you know, oh. uh, or you go on amazon there you go if you go on amazon and you look it up you'll find the new version of the uh, of the ouija board from parker brothers i'm so curious what that looks like there's like a bunch of millennials sitting around it or something i feel like at this <laughs> yeah. point they would have already developed like it's, the electronic ouija I board was say it's an app it's an app it's all it is right yeah it's like mall madness with a ouija board (laughs) now i'm dating myself have you ever used the ouija board that you guys have (laughs) uh so the one that we have no everybody's too chicken shit to do it like we've actually had like friends come over you know drinking night the drinking parties or even forget if we try to take it out on halloween the the fact that people see it when we're walking around with it on halloween are like (gasps) put that away 
Uh, and then uh, there are any other times it's like we're, we're already considered weird, weird enough. So it's like nobody wants to do it. Uh, but when I was in high school, when I was in high school, we did the makeshift, you know, uh, Dollar Tree version of the uh, of the uh, the Ouija board, which is just get your you know your little wide ruled paper, uh-huh. and uh, you fold it in half, and then the, and then you go ahead and actually do the alphabet on it, like the QWERTY keyboard, right? <laughs> and then you put your yes and your no, and then you get a quarter, and then you're just going and then amongst your friends, you put a finger or maybe two fingers, depending on how many of you guys are doing it, and then you. You just are circling around and moving it. And so I remember that that's how I, that's how I was introduced to the concept of the Ouija board. Right. And I remember playing that in, in school, like I forgot, like fourth period or whatever. Uh, and the girl that was doing it with me, she was like, I was like, you know what? Just ask it when I'm going to die. You know? And so okay. she was like, no, don't do that. I'm like, ask it, ask it. I dare you. And she did it. Right. And she did it. She did this dramatic, like doing this. And then she like, lets it go with both hands at the same time and just like cover her mouth and goes, you're going to, you're going to die on graduation year, which was 1995, right? <laughs> so as you can see, I'm dead inside and, uh, and it worked, right? It's true. But, uh, yeah, that's, that was my introduction to the Ouija board. That's cool. I didn't know that you could like do a makeshift Ouija board because I have a quarter and I have notebook paper at home. Yeah. I'll be summoning some demons later tonight because I know they'd be too scared to possess me. Yeah. Well, and on that note, I forgot the one of the other things that we have in the uh, in our cabinet are tarot cards. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I, I love tarot. Yeah. Yeah. So we have those. And that that, that was also where I, I used to do uh, in my 20s back in our clubbing bar days. We used to uh, that was actually a parlor trick that I used to do for free drinks and for friends, which what was kind of tarot really, like tarot tricks. Uh, well, actually, I was thinking more of the psychic. So I was doing the psychic uh, readings and all that cool stuff and had people going for a couple of rounds. You know, and that was pretty fun back in the day. So what kind of like what, what were the readings like? Would they ask you like a question about when they would die or like if they were going to get together with this him or her or whatever? No, most of the most of the read, quote unquote readings that I would do is just going back to the uh, the tried and true psychic uh, technique of cold, you know, when you, you weed out cold readings mm-hmm. and then you add alcohol. That was the that was the big helper right there. Okay. And then uh, and then all you would do is just uh, you're just actively listening and uh, and and responding with uh, ambivalent or ambiguous answers, I should say. So um, one of the neater things about when you're describing someone, it's like uh, I just I just met you, Jay, and you seem like a person that is very kept together, <laughs> but at times struggles with it. Um, you seem like a person. Someone throw me uh, throw me a description. Yeah. Uh, he's really into He-Man. Okay, you look like you're really into He-Man, and yet you're also into, like, uh, literature and, and, and strong and characters, strong female characters. So you see, you go for the opposite of right. whatever the one okay. description is, and you present it as the same package, right? And so when you add al- alcohol, that even enhances it more, and so people are like, whoa, my <laughs> mind blown. Right? You know, okay, I'm stealing that. I'm going to try yeah. to get free drinks off so that now. That's, that is literally how the psychic, and they get warmer, right? So you, you hone that. You kind of throw the wide net, and then you start picking away, picking away, and then you're looking for people that are susceptible susceptible, and already willing to believe that stuff. And mm-hmm. so you just get there, and you hone it in and further and further, and then eventually you're really 
they think that you're really hitting the nail on who they are and what they're doing. And that's when you start throwing out predictions and asking for money, right? If you're going to be that kind of asshole, yeah, uh, which that's where I would draw the line. And I would do that for educational purposes, believe it or not. Uh, and people would uh, not like that because <laughs> I know with you're, ex- I know that you're, 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 you're killing the business. Yeah. yeah. No. Uh, Cause like, uh, I like to read my own tarot cards and, but my cards are dicks because they've got my energy all over them. So I'll be like, life guys I'll pick up one card it's always the fucking tower I'm like see I, for some reason I was actually enjoying thinking it was more like my cards are actual dicks you know they're like mm-hmm. dick cards that's all they are I right pay good money <laughs> oh you know what I'm sure that there's probably like there's dick a set tarot. out there right? yeah dick tarot right there just different size dicks <laughs> with different emblems and whatnot I really hope that's true Jay that's what I want for my birthday next year okay <laughs> Okay, so, wait, we were talking about The Exorcist still, though, right? Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, The Exorcist kind of ruined Ouija boards. I don't know if they either ruined Ouija boards or they made Ouija boards more popular. But, you know, it definitely led into, like, uh, more things. Um, we got, that was kind of when we start, when possession movies started getting pretty popular, would you say? Yes. Uh, one of the neatest things that happened with, like, The Exorcist movie was c- trying to go back to the time of 1973, right? This was literally a time before you had anything considered blockbuster. So the current, the, you know, we're used to today and movie theaters, movie chains, you have your Draft House, your Santico's here in San Antonio, you have your uh, movie codes and whatnot and uh and then you have your um amcs and then you also have your temple movies that come out every every summer right once upon a time that wasn't the case you had uh you know today with the movies and video games and uh apps everything right there's so many entertainment uh medium choices back in the early 70s i mean this was even before you know superhero movies this was like a couple of years ago it was batman and robin from 1968 series that was the greatest superhero movie at the time um steven spielberg hadn't even made jaws yet as a big you know temple or a oh, blockbuster yeah. movie so what back in those days movie theaters were very much still they were in the tail end of being mom and popish and so what they would do is they would go ahead and play one movie and that movie would play con- consistently on the screen for months at a time and so that uh, during that time you would have if I'm not mistaken the godfather was like the biggest hit at that point and so this was and that was kind of expected you either had westerns that were big hits or you would have these crime dramas that were huge hits mm-hmm. right um and uh nothing really that dealt with nothing that dealt with uh, anything in the paranormal science fiction uh definitely nothing with demons mm-hmm. that would make it that big you had your 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 cult movies nowadays are cult movies but uh and you had a few but rosemary's baby kind of started that trend where they started to legitimize it in the eyes of hollywood executives. That is very true, yes. And so now they started to see, holy crap, we can actually make good money on this. So when The Exorcist got its blessing and, and made and it came out, it became it was a huge hit. And so that right there if, uh, would make the, of course, the theaters play it even more. Right At that time, that, that's if it was a big hit and it started getting traction, it would start on the East Coast, go all the way down to the middle, middle America. And, uh, and these theaters would keep playing it and keep playing it. And so what would happen is that you would have this unintended consequence of inspiring people, right? And you would inspire other filmmakers, but then 
which was expected, but then you'd have it inspire the last person you would expect, lawyers and families, right? And and that was really the premise or the 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 the, the what ended up creating uh, the Amityville Horror. Um, but before I go into too much into that tangent, come bringing it back to just how uh, The Exorcist was one of the movies that um, started that genre. It, it really it, it solidified it. It legitimized it as a moneymaker for Hollywood. Yeah, but I definitely want to hear how this relates to like more on, on the lines of Amityville. I, again, franchise not familiar with, especially because the only Amityville, I mean, I've seen the 2005 Amityville horror with Brian Reynolds and bits and pieces of the old ones because I'm a bad horror fan sometimes. <laughs> well, the... Um the interesting thing was uh, the, the uh, Smithsonian uh, Channel d- did this wonderful documentary on the history of the Amityville Horror. And, uh, and I'm not going to steal all its thunder, but I'll just take the parts. Smithsonian has enough money. You're fine. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. But you could go ahead, but I'll, I'll paraphrase so the way it kind of happened. So like today, you know, you think about what, what year it is and you think about like... Uh, you know, not even six years, yeah, six years ago, Avengers came out, right? The first movie. And look at all, everything that came out of that and inspired and whatnot in six years' time. So, you know, rewind time, it's 1973. A little less than six years later, here we are in this uh, affluent suburb in New, upper New York State where people were actually uh, moving into the Lutzes, right? The Lutzes were moving into the family of the DeFeos. Mm-hmm. There you go. So... In this affluent suburb, the DeFell's actual family, right? They end up uh, having this, uh, uh, I'm not sure if meth was even existing back then, but he was basically a drug addict kid, right? I was going to say meth addicted son out of this affluent family. And uh, he ends up uh, basically being like today's active lone wolf shooter, right? Decides to kill the family before he could go out and massacre people on the streets randomly. He just kills his family and gets caught. Typical white male. Uh, so uh, the um, the big thing that happens there with with that piece is that it's pretty, you know, it's it's nothing notable outside of the fact that it was an affluent neighborhood and people there were shocked. Um, that said, the house went on the market after the DeFell family was murdered, and uh, and it was the estate was sold, and uh, the Lutz family was the one that bought it. It was fairly quick too, wasn't it? After yes. the murders, mm-hmm. that's what it I remember. Was, it was uh, relatively speaking, right? I mean, ultimately, it was because of the fact that the murders happened. They you know they brought down the, the price, and and think of it kind of like uh, you're looking at. I guess in today's terms, like all of a sudden the Dominion is going to offer you a two hundred thousand dollar house, right? It's like holy shit, who is it going to be putting an offer on that, right? And that's kind of the equivalent of what was happening there in Amityville. Yeah. So when when that happened, the um, the Lutzes, of course, move in. And now this guy was actually kind of uh, basically a um, uh, handyman, tried to have a business with that. Definitely couldn't afford a bit off more you could chew, even with that kind of mortgage. And, uh, and took up an offer from this random, uh, well, not random, but it was the attorney that was actually assigned to take uh, to handle the DeFeo case. Mm-hmm. Ronnie DeFeo, right, is, the, is the, the murderer. He was in jail. The only thing that he, uh, you know, the guy was obviously crazy, right, and, and uh, addict. So his brain was fried, was talking all kinds of stuff, and mentioned in one of those rants randomly that he was hearing voices, right? So it's typical schizophrenia. Yeah. Or at the time, the condition as it was named, um, and the um, the big thing was he ended up that attorney wanted to write a book, and much like your crime dramas, you know, at the time in the early seventies, you could make money on that, and that was his intent. He was going to make money on this nonfiction account of the DeFell murder. He ended up reaching out to the Lutzes, 
and was like, hey, you guys mind if I go over to the house? You know that there was a murder there and I just want to take pictures inside the house and make sure that I could go ahead and, and uh, just document it. And, uh, and the Lutzes were like, we don't know. And then he goes, I'll pay you. And then they're like, okay, come on in. <laughs> so uh, the, he went over and he came in. Well, they apparently bonded, right? So this tells you the kind of, um, the, 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 the kind of person, the, you know, the, the, the patriarch of the Lutzes was. And you're dealing with an attorney, right? Mm-hmm. So the that says right there. If you're friends with an attorney, hey. So the uh, they end up hitting it off, and so a, a couple of times they actually hang out. And then this one time it was like a crazy Saturday night, right? And you got this, uh, you got this, aff- you know, this rich aff- affluent uh, neighborhood, predominantly white, and it's like let's go ahead and throw a kick-ass party, which meant you know, high end liquor and staying in. So as they did that, they end up turning it into a jam session. And this jam session was (laughs) like, Hey, let's, you know, I'm going to write this book. Yeah, dude. Yeah, let's do it. And you can like sell the rights, dude. Yeah. I'll sell the rights. And if we sell the rights, we can make money on it. Yeah. Well, how do you want to do it? Well, let's do this a crime drama. No, no, no. You remember they made this movie and and it like had like a shit ton of money. And they're like, Wow, mind blown. What are you talking about? It's like, dude, The Exorcist. <laughs> it like you could go down to the theater over here and you can see they're still playing it and it's still making bank. Holy shit, you're right. What if, you know, and this is probably between swigs of whiskey or whatever it was that they're drinking. It's like, what if we not only write your crime drama, but we make it like about demons and we throw that shit in there? Holy fuck, that's an awesome idea. That's a mint right there. All right, so then all of a sudden, boom, at the end, they actually end up changing the concept of the story into this possession story. Okay. It's like, man, that was like Bill and Ted having conversations. Well, exactly, done. right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that's, dude, dude. <laughs> yeah, it's, I was trying to, that, that's my upper uh, New York affluent uh, accent, right? <laughs> so. Sandemus teenager. <laughs> yeah. Sandemus New York. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they end up doing this, um, the, he, the attorney ends up trying to do this, the, the book right that way. And, it, and there's even more drama after that because the Lutzes end up trying to screw him over by getting more of the rights. Right. They didn't want to even collab. They didn't want to admit to collaborative rights on it. So they try to cut him out of it. They actually did manage to cut him out of it. And they go with this other author that ends up uh, penning the script. They sell the, if I remember correctly, they sell the script and then the author comes in and, and adapts it into a novel. And so, and the Lutzes get a bigger cut that way. Okay. And so that novel ends up being called the Amityville Horror and ends up becoming the, um, the movie that ended up starring the great Margot Kidder. Uh, and, uh, and in that movie, if I'm not mistaken, it was 1980 or 79 when it came out. Uh, and it was uh, kind of going back to my, my analogy of the Avengers, right? Six years later, and you have all this craziness with comic book movies. So you had um, The Exorcist, 1973, six years later, this craziness with Amityville. And it was the, the, the time was right and it was perfect for it to become a blockbuster. And it ended up cementing itself into pop culture uh, because it, it, it actually capitalized on the marketing that was, in my opinion, piloted by Toby Hooper and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Thank you. Thank you so much. Actually, yeah, I was just thinking that. So no actual hauntings happening in the uh, Amityville Horror then? None at all. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. And I know that Toby Hooper, when he did Texas Chainsaw, he put based on a true story. Exactly. Which it's sort of, you know, just to get that attention. And he got the inspiration from Ed Gein, but yeah, not based on true story. So clearing up some misconceptions here on the podcast today. Yeah. And then really it was just a matter of them actually taking advantage of the, of the marketing that 
that was and the, at the time that was the big thing the demons right and they were uh, they were legitimate Hollywood blockbuster blockbusters and so the uh, after the that movie came out it ended up cementing itself in pop culture uh, spawned the sequels uh, they even though they arguably went down in quality after the second one uh, the truth was that it really then reinforced more of that notion that this was real and timing wise that ended up contributing to the climate that was going on in America with the rise of e evangelicism in terms of political power. So this was the 80s now, right? We're hardcore into the 80s and you had evangelicals that ended up becoming, uh, that ended up starting to realize how they could that muscle and, and uh, basically had political muscle that they had mm -hmm. never flexed before. When you have that kind of belief system, there always has, there's always the good guys and there's always the bad guys, right? And so what better way to have bad guys than Satan himself? So when you had in pop culture, this create, you know, this, this environment where what you're seeing in Hollywood and in, 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 in popular media coming out, dealing with the supernatural, then they in turn start making what's been tried and true in, in the history of the United States, which is every generation has one entertainment medium to blame. You know, you could go as far back, I don't know, to the American Revolutionary War, and you had Sleepy Hollow, right? You would blame those kids that are trying to ride horseback in the middle of the night, you know, angry old man <laughs> shaking his fist in the air, give me back my horse, right? For all we know, they would blame that on the, on, on, Teenagers, right? And so teenagers in the 50s, you know, that was uh, at the time with comic books, EC Comics and whatnot. And you had um, you had uh, the seduction of the innocent, right? Saying that you were a guaranteed delinquent if you read comic books. And so by the time you got to the 80s, you know, it was, it was the same thing being regurgitated. Uh, it was, uh, but now they had already started to pick on Gygax and the uh, Dungeons and Dragons. That's so, right. I remember that. I remember the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was, and I think in a way, Gygax was, um, you know, there's there's great stories that'll talk about the actual incident that sparked it, but um, you could say that the the fuel was already there that was going to create this this bonfire, and that was in part because of movies such as The Exorcist and the Amityville Horror that were creating this environment of demons and, and being pop culture. And if you were a teenager at that time, of course you're going to be watching this and talking about it. And if you're a parent and an old stogie like my, me now, right, you hear this, it's like, oh, oh no, there's something out there, right? That's trying to get my kid. And and, uh, and you realize that it's, oh crap, it's the, um, it's the demons. And so evangelicals by this point had actually started to um, uh, coalesce into these groups that were then create, uh, not only controlling political, but also media channels. And the 24-hour news channel came out and they were always hungry Just for stories. With it. Yes, and yeah. they ran with it. And so the, uh, the craze ended up starting about, there were these unknown satanic cults out there that were kidnapping children and creating all these uh, horrible uh, uh, black masses that would uh, result in uh, deaths and whatnot. And they were the reason why America was dying. So that was pretty much the, the way you had the dominoes fell from The Exorcist all the way to the 80s and death metal and, uh, and the decay of America. Yeah, and I don't think that really died out until maybe mid-90s. I mean, yeah. we still had uh, demon and possession movies, but the satanic panic thing, you know, it just kept going for a while. I think maybe late, eight, late 90s, you know, we got more comfortable with things like goth culture yeah. and, you know, sort of differentiating things, especially with the advent of the internet, too. 
Yeah, the internet did that. Uh, Seattle grunge scene killed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, nobody's interested in hair metal anymore, guys, yeah. or death metal. So, yeah. Uh, what are some of, do you have any other favorite possession or demon movies besides The Exorcist? Anything that's, you know, probably something worth watching that's up there? Um, well, there were uh, the clones that came out after The Exorcist, right? Uh, there was there were some pretty fun ones that were out there. Uh, help me out here. And uh, what were some of the ones that I'm thinking about? Um, Abby, which is a, Abby? Is a black exploitation of, you know. The black exploitation version of The Exorcist? That's wow. right. Yes, you should. The Exorcist. Yes, basically. You could go on YouTube and just look at clips of that, and it is hilariously out there. It's exactly how you imagine it. It looks just like that. Oh, dear. Uh, there was also uh, an Italian one, right? There was, um, I can't remember the name. The Possession, right? That was all it was called. The Beyond. The Beyond, yep. Those were some of the ones that came out there that way. I mean, you watch that and it's like, um, it's basically, you have to be in that mindset of, I love The Exorcist so much. I want to see the variations of there. I want to see what what's out, what else is out there, and you watch these movies. American Spider Man's fine, but what yeah. about Italian Spider Man yeah. or well, Turkish Spider Man? Turkish Spider Man <laughs> is the one I don't think about. It's yes, like, we, we need to yeah. look for a Turkish exorcist. You know, we, oh no, <laughs> Bollywood. Oh, Bollywood exorcist. I'm sure that exists. Yeah. I think there's a Bollywood version of Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, I it's probably on YouTube. That. You guys, are, you know, yeah. it's sure it's fine. Yeah. Oh man, so. You know, something that I was kind of thinking about in a weird way, because, you know, I have random thoughts, not all appropriate, but, you know, because when the 30th anniversary of The Exorcist happened, it would have been 2003. And, you know, I like to think that in a parallel dimension, they remade the movie, but they remade it casting like Lindsay Lohan, because that's when she was like trying to transition from being like a kid star into being a more respected actress. And then like Tina Fey would be her mother because, of course, she would. And then, you know, instead of uh, like J.K. Simmons would be the homicide detective because you you I could see that. Absolutely. And then Gabriel Byrne could play Karis because, I mean, Gabriel Byrne's already, you know, has played a priest and the devil. So he's got it down. He's fine. You know, but I, I like to feel like in that parent that uh, parallel dimension, like that's that's what Lindsay Lohan did instead of making I know who killed me. And then she went on to live like a fulfilling life instead of, you know, like assaulting homeless refugee <laughs> families on the street and then getting knocked yeah. right the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but if you. OK, I know this is sacrilegious to say, but if you had to recast The Exorcist today. Any thoughts? Would I even touch it? No. no. The um, if I were to try and recast it today, I, okay. So I'm biased. I would have to say the part of Reagan. I would have to give to Millie Bobby Brown, mm-hmm. just because, right? Just because I'd give that to her. Absolutely. Um, Father Karras. You know, I, I'm kind of torn with that one, but I can see Fastbender trying to do that. Oh my God, yeah. that Michael would Fass, be good. Magneto, right? Yeah, that, that could see that. Um, and then Father Marin. Yeah, I still so. vote for James Woods. Sorry to done it before. <laughs> James Woods. Yeah, from one of the scary movies when yeah. they when they spoofed it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I still think Max von Sydow could pull it off. I really do. Is he alive? Yeah, he's still alive. Well, remember, crap. he was he was in uh, in the Force Awakens, right? Oh, he was in right. there at the very beginning, and and it's like, uh, and in truth be told, they actually tried to they aged him in the original Exorcist, right? And they, he was wearing the prosthetics and makeup to look older, uh, and so that actually would mean that he's 
now at that age, right, where he could play that part <laughs> inappropriately <laughs> without makeup. <laughs> so that would actually, so I, I would still want him in there. He'd be that one, act, you know, that one actor you get from the original one to, to bring legitimacy to your remake. He'd be that one. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, I don't know, the mom, uh, can't think of anyone that really stands out for me. It could me. be literally anybody. It wouldn't matter. It could be Judy Greer. She'd probably be her because that's all she does is play moms now. Mm. So. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so that's really the, uh, who am I missing here? That's that pretty much the, the main that's cast, right? Mo- yeah, that's pretty much anybody that matters. Yeah, uh, that's how I would recast it. I think uh, from, a, from a screenwriter or the, uh, uh, who would adapt the screenplay, I would have to say for me, ooh, I'd probably want, um, geez, I can't think of his name, Get Out. Um, Jordan Peele? Jordan Peele, thank yes. you. Yes, I would. I would want to see his spin on it. That's what I would want to see. Uh, and I heard that he's trying to do that Candyman remake, and so I'm kind of looking forward to that to see how that kind of I'm plays kind out. of. Yeah, I'm on board for that, but I love Tony Todd so much. I'm oh, like, I agree. just let Tony Todd be in the movie somewhere. I, I know. Um, I don't know if you read the interview, but Tony Todd they asked him about it, and he's all like, he's giving it his blessing, and he's kind of like, uh, hey, it's going to bring. I think he said something to the effect of, it'll bring food to my table. I'm good. Yeah. Uh, so, but I could see, you know, it's like, hey. You know, invite him or you know give him a, if not a cameo at least you know interact with the guy oh, yeah. um, I know the score right tubular bells was like the, the synonymous with the exorcist mm-hmm. uh, and then they did um, night of the electric insects was this 1960s weird ass um, uh, play right that they got the soundtrack from and that's where most of the scenes with the Pazuzu and the creepiness would come in okay uh, but tubular bells I think I would remake that with Anything John Carpenter. Oh, I'm, so you read my yeah. mind. Yeah. Like John Carpenter's version of Tubular Bells. Yeah. Oh, I, like a throw wanted. a cool guitar riff in there, maybe. Yeah, just the old synthesizer to it, yeah. too. And it's like, I, I'd want to hear that. Uh, and then, um, but for the the Night Electric Insects, that one, uh, it, it may, some avant-garde shit that's out there today. I don't know who could write it. I mean, it still holds, you know, when, I, when you hear it. If you, you can go on iTunes and you can find it. I, I have it, of course, on my phone. Uh, but um, you, you can hear all the different... Um, uh, components or the different scores for it uh, and movements I'm sorry movements and they have uh, a couple of ones that really stand out that fit perfectly for horror movies and so I think they, 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 I would keep that part but here's the here's here's the final question who would you recast for who would you have it have directed oh yeah the director that's important so you know I I couldn't really name one person that stands out I, I, paradoxically I'm like I'm surprising myself right now thinking it's like who, nobody came top of mind um, some of the movies that we've seen that really uh, resonated nowadays are um, just not uh, let me see we can get my trusty phone uh, but I'll tell you one of the ones that really I think dealt with re- religion belief in a good way that I would be interested in seeing that like that would get my attention. Mm-hmm. And so I would probably look at, uh, where is he? Where is he? So, I'd go with Michael Bay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the <laughs> exorcist needs more explosions. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what's her name? Megan Fox. Let's throw, <laughs> let's throw her in there. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> She'll be Reagan. Oh, I think I she's too old. That. She's like actually getting close to 40. She'll be the so. mom. She'll be the mom. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. I like Megan Fox, but I, wouldn't, I couldn't put her in there. Ang Lee. Ooh. Ang Lee. I, I loved how he did Life of Pi. 
And I think that's, you know, that, that right there is like a, a, a just a, a whole case study of belief systems. And so I think that that resonates with the version of the exorcist for me anyway. You could have like lots of doves flying everywhere. <laughs> or a pantless hulk running around. Yeah, the that too. Uh, I think that if I had to go with a director, I'd probably go with Ari Aster, who did Hereditary earlier this year. Yep. That would that, be... He's the newcomer, right? Yeah, yeah I know. Because he, he just like took everything that he'd ever learned in, in, in all of his filmmaking years and just decided, here, I'm going to leave everything on the table. Enjoy, guys. And we did. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. It was very visual. And I think he could probably... Do it, do it justice. I think you're right. I, th- I think with seeing him coming out of the gate with that, uh, that movie was was beautiful. And especially uh, when, when I heard in his interview how he uses inspiration. Carrie was one of the movies, right? And what was the other one that he mentioned that he, he grew up with that was really thinking about? He was another one that was in there. Um, but the, the point is that when you would, would talk about this, I mean, it's a, it's a horror fan. Right. He's a big fan. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and growing up Jewish, he had that um, that distance from the material, you know, when it comes down to the, the demon possession and whatnot to make it just exclusively Christian in nature. So I think he could get away with doing that, that kind of, of um, exploration here with this content. Yeah. Although I definitely I think we can both say we definitely hope that a remake never happens for The Exorcist. Agreed. Agreed. And uh, of course, we're both going to recommend it for sure. But uh, before we wrap up, do you have any closing thoughts on it? Um, so The Exorcist, I know, as, as for me personally, uh, as much of an influence it had, it actually helped. I th- the biggest legacy and imprint it left on me was to want me to help. Uh, it helped. It inspired me to try to understand more demonology, human nature. Right. And and so it made me even weirder in the sense that now I can really be branded satanic because I get all these collections and whatnot. Uh, oh, and, everyone has a copy of the satanic Bible. It's fine. Right? But uh, for, for instance, one of the things that I had to do was actually look up how our exorcisms perform, right? And truly, truly performed. And so um, that's why I, I was able to, through, um, it was through eBay, finding out the seller that had access to the Vatican's um, basically bookstore and was able to get a hold of the right of exorcism directly from them. So, um, and then of course you get this and it's like, Hey, it's Latin. And I barely remember <laughs> some of it. So let me get the English translation. And so I got that and that one you can find on eBay easily. Uh, and, um, and so now you can see that and, and, and read about it and then realizing it, you know, it's like Hollywood took this exorcisms and, and glamorized it because the real exorcism, the quote unquote real exorcisms, um, are pretty mundane and kind of, uh, boring. When you think about it, you know, there's no real, so there's nothing flying through the room. There's no shaking bed, you know, unfortunately, (laughs) there's no pea soup as much as I was hoping I could see that. But uh, they have, it's just one guy basically badgering this poor victim, right, to death and yelling and screaming in their face until they cave in and say, okay, I'm done. I'm not possessed anymore. Leave me alone. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that was really the ultimate thing. And, uh, it's a and, predecessor to scared straight programs. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and I will say um, that from a personal standpoint, it really helped resonate and, and, and begin a uh, the, the, the love story that I have with my wife because how I met her extended family was with an actual exorcism. Wow. Uh, yeah, and, and 
in, uh, in, in her home in Mexico, uh, which was an aunt of hers that uh, wanted to go ahead and get one of her cousins to, to uh, be exercised. Uh, the kid had epilepsy, right? And so he uh, had one of those, not the regular seizure, not the, the fall down seizure, but the other one where you kind of spaced out and mm, don't mm-hmm. respond. You're unresponsive. And so she took that time, that moment and that time to go ahead and grab him and smack the shit out of him and start yelling, salte satanás, right? And, and doing yelling all, all these different prayers to him and uh, making him come back with these rosy cheeks, right? Because they've been slapped so much. Say, hey, what happened? Right? And that was about it. So anyway, after that, that's that's how we bonded with the exorcism, <laughs> with the exorcist movie. And uh, yeah, that's how we got along pretty well after that. That's so cute. That's like, that's, that's the modern love story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but those were, that was, um, when it comes down to it, the, as the exorcist, the, I can't say this enough, the more, the older we get, um, the more I, I, the, the Catholic guilt, you know, that was instilled in me as a kid, I, I haven't gotten rid of it. And so I struggle with that and watching the movie, it's a great case study to try and balance that out and, and you know, figure out how, how, how we're going to, how we're going to move forward with this today. Good way. Good way. Good, good thought to uh, end it on, too. Yeah. Something to ponder for sure. Uh, do you have anything you would like to promote? Because I don't know what it is you do. I do absolutely nothing. I do absolutely nothing. I was never here. No, uh, the uh, the big thing. No, I'm actually just uh, it came out and uh, was asked to talk about this. I love talking about. St- I'm a horror fan uh, through and through, and so uh, my family and I are, love the genre. And so when it comes down to it, if uh, if you guys are willing to invite me over and we could talk more about all these other tangents that I was trying very deliberately not to throw out and go off on, uh, by all means, feel free to ask, and I'll, I'll be happy to, to make time and swing by. No, anytime that you want to come by and talk about scary shit, we're always happy to have you. All right. Yeah, because let me tell you, I know some stories about Jay that they will like, completely- Oh, those are the scariest. <laughs> Remember, I'm the editor. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's just going to be like a series of beep, beep, yeah. beep, 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 beep. So this one's a beep. <laughs> and actually, there's no copyright on that music, so you could use it. It's not belonging to the Simpsons. It's called A Little Spanish Flea. You can, I'm just saying. Anyway, I'm getting off topic, but, uh, well, guys, if you all want to share your thoughts on The Exorcist, again, you can always follow us on the social meds. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search for Sheebie-Jeebies. I swear I'm probably the only person that has that in most cases, and it's horror-themed. You'll figure it out. And you can also email us at sheebiejeebies at outlook.com. So until next time, stay creepy. 